0: Welcome to the latest episode of It Depends. This week, we'll be finishing up our series in testing. The last few weeks, we've talked about debugging, and then we talked about test-driven development. And this week, we're going to answer, try and answer the question of changing code for tests. So we'll work through, could someone do this? Would you guys do this? Mm-hmm. And uh, then, should you change your code for your tests? That's what we're going to talk about. So I'm here. My name's Ben Robin. I'm here with David Mohandro. Mo. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. Good, and I'm here with Daniel Pritchett.
1: Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: How are you doing, Daniel? Just great. And Jesse Brown. Hey, guys. Good to be with you again, Jesse. Yeah, thanks. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter, at ClearFunction or hashtag Depends. We'll hear any questions you have or topics you'd like us to discuss. If you have anything to say about this particular topic uh, of testing, test-driven development, debugging, and even this question of changing code for tests, let us know on Twitter. Again, that's at Clear Function, and hashtag ItDepends. Okay, guys. Could someone change code for testing? Yes. Yes. Could it happen? Uh, absolutely, it could happen. <laughs> yeah. Someone could do that, and that wouldn't give anyone here hives. Ooh, oh, well, that's, that's not, that's not oh, what you oh, asked. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> would you guys change code? Would you specifically, Mo? would Excuse you change me. code for testing? I have
2: a great answer for you right here. That was terrible. You can't really hear that. Uh, that it was depends. our It Depends bell. So... Actually, I'm going to throw a loop here because one of the first things that came to mind today for me was Michael Feather's book on legacy code. And his view of legacy code is you've come into a project and uh, you don't know how it works. So the first thing you should do is write a test to verify that it works. Mm -hmm. And that way you now have the flexibility to be able to change it. So he writes the test first around it even with any sort of crazy stuff about interdependencies and all that and then he changes it to work within the confines of the test
0: so you would do it depending on things
2: yeah so i mean if i'm building maybe a more appropriate answer in this case is is this something that is going to be publicly accessible to others like am i worried about the API, am I worried about, uh, changing, like if someone is hitting my code, is this going to break them if I start doing something like mm-hmm. this or do I want them to be able to call it later? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's sort of, that's where the, it depends comes for me. If it's just something I'm doing on my own, I'm more likely to, but if I have reservations, it's more around concerns around making sure that I'm exposing only what I want to for, An external consumer of my code
0: makes perfect sense. I'm going to rate that as a most likely no. Daniel, (laughs) would you change code for tests?
1: I would change the question. Um, I hear (laughs) Mo talking (laughs) about (laughs) public methods as a contract, and we've discussed internally that there's sort of a sliding scale there. Yeah. When is the unchangeability or the contract nature of a public method? Like when does that really matter? When does it not matter? (laughs) It depends. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and I would change it, by the way. But I wanted to hear like, okay. from either of you, Jesse Umo, like when do you really want your public methods to be a serious contract that people can rely on, and when does it not matter?
0: We're going to get into that. Jesse, oh, no. <laughs> would yeah. you change code for tests? Would I? There, there's a very
3: slim chance that I would. <laughs> okay. But I, I think the only place that I would willingly do it would be for legacy code. Okay. Uh, if it's not legacy code, then I would probably do almost everything
0: to not do that. Okay, all right, let's get into it. Should someone do this
1: is the real question. I think you should write testable code. I'm willing to give Jesse the benefit of the doubt and imagine that all the code he's writing is testable. He just doesn't feel the need to test it all. Okay, so in that if case, you take whoa, a novice whoa, 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 programmer, that
3: sounds, that sounds
1: bad. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> that is that no, is a I very mean, dangerous so if you take summary. a novice programmer and they write like a 300 line method and it doesn't work and they're like I don't know why it works and you tell them well refactor it into 20 little methods and then test them individually, and then test the intermediates and do a unit test or a integration test around the whole thing. So if your code's already well factored, let's say you're probably going to test the most important parts within your time constraints, right?
3: No, I'm saying you can get 100% test coverage without making your private methods public
1: is is the way
3: I look at testing. I like, do if think... I need to test my code, I can get it all tested without making any member public that I didn't expect to be public to begin with. Okay. So that's, so that, that's my difference, uh, my opinion on it, is I just think that I can test every code path from my external public API because mm-hmm. those private methods exist to support the public API. So if I can't get those private methods to execute and assert that they changed any of the output, mm-hmm. then then neither can the caller to my public method.
1: Okay. So you're specifically addressing sort of a subset of Ben's question. is Should you ever make a private method public? That's what I'm hearing. And you're saying if it's private, it's for a reason. I think Ben was asking, do you ever change your code to make it more testable, which is not quite the same thing. So a little bit of context (laughs) for the (laughs) listeners. The reason
0: this particular conversation is the one we wanted to have in the testing series is that last week uh, I had a case where I wrote some functionality, uh, and we had this conversation in the office about... (laughs) Uh, changing code for tests is the broader conversation. I agree with Daniel's distinction about the uh, spe- specificity of this example. But mm-hmm. uh, we had written in the app that we're working on that you can test internals, which Jesse told me you had to make some changes for Daniel. Um, but the, the question was, do you make the thing public or internal instead of private and test it in that class? Or do you make a new class and inject it? And I think we ended up doing both, but we landed on injecting it and writing a test around the other class.
3: Yeah, and so we're talking about .NET here specifically with right. this example. And I do think that there is a, di- a a distinction to be made between making something public and making something internal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are two separate things that my answer of that is going to vary between them. If, am I going to make something public to make it testable? No. Am I going to make something internal to make it testable? I try not to, but but there are cases where that may make sense. Okay. Because because so, internal, as the name implies, at least in .NET, means it's not accessible from an outside caller. If you're if you're referencing this library as a package, then you can't just see these methods and accidentally <laughs> call them. So yeah, it's not part of your public contract. So I have less less concern with making something internal, but I do think I, I strive towards making my public API make all the you know making sure all the code paths are accessible easily through the public API in the first place.
0: So in this specific example, we were, we were doing some reporting. And the, the particular business logic around the things we wanted to report on uh, were in private methods. And one of them filtered out some things, and the other one filtered out some other things based on whatever the business logic was. Uh, it makes sense, I think, in that class for those two things to be private functions. But if you want to write tests around them, then you ha- what you're saying, Jesse, is you have to split it out into a thing that filters the things. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it greatly that. depends
3: on what your dependency is. In this particular case, the private methods dealt with like a an SFTP client of right. some sort, right? So your, you know, your ability to swap that out or to make that testable in the first place is is directly related to the component that we're using to actually mm-hmm. like to do that, right? But in in the simple case of like, you know, get get me back a list of items um, that I expect to get, then if you've got one path that filters them and one path that doesn't, then you know, if, you pass in a, if you pass in a flag to that method to, to filter them the one way or the other, then you can easily test both private methods that filter it without having to expose both of those private internal functions. Mm-hmm. So one of my, heart, one of my uh, reasons to dislike making them public is it doesn't actually prove that your public API uses that method in any mm-hmm. way. I've seen it time and time again. Uh, and I'm actually going to call Daniel out on this one. I saw it in a Ruby app not too long oh. ago, where there was some refactoring that went along, and we we made some methods, and there were some tests around it. Mm-hmm. There was even some tests around this public method, but this public method wasn't actually called in the uh, in the actual method that was <laughs> doing the work, like in production. So you know, it was just not calling the method that was really well tested.
1: Oh
0: yeah, it's I in- that. It's interesting that you bring that up, though, because I feel like most of the time when people say don't make private public so you can test it. They're worried about ten years from now somebody calling the new public method that's not supposed to be public and right. everything blowing up and everyone dying.
3: It's yeah, like, I'm sort of the reverse of like just because you tested this one method doesn't mean that it's being called that way or that it's being called at all. So aren't you it also kind of making contract.
0: unit tests into integration tests though? When you say that, like you want no, the no, what well, you're not testing the line Depends of code itself. Well, that's not you're what you're integration te- test You're now is. testing multiple uh, f- pieces of functionality that testing one thing leads unit. into the other. Uh, I, I test like a class is a unit mm-hmm. in my
3: mind, and oh, you and, and think a
0: class of, explicitly is a unit. That
3: is the unit that you're testing. The system under test is the class that sure. I'm instantiating and calling the the public methods on.
0: Yeah,
2: okay. You, so, and and one of the cases in point. So the original question we asked was: Should you change code for tests? I mean, another thing that's coming out of this a little bit. Uh, last time we talked was. You know, do you write the test first or afterwards? But we do often change change how we write code mm-hmm. to make it testable. Definitely. Yes. Case Definitely. in point with .NET dependency injection. Or you're, you're going to simply so that you can replace behavior at test time, like with a yep. mock or something like mm-hmm. that. Yep. So we do change the way we test, yeah, uh, the way we whether or not tests. we yeah. change the
0: API
2: mm-hmm. so right. that we can make the test more easily test more easily is maybe a different question. That's a good
0: point. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the reason I'm more in line with Daniel on this one is because the the bigger question is, is testing a first-class concern?
1: I mean, for me, for sure, everything I write is going to have some sort of test if I'm going to have to maintain it or have some Mm -hmm. sort of consistent velocity and building on top of it. I don't want to have a a shaky foundation. But I think Jesse and Mo both suggested last week that that might be partly colored by my... uh, having more experience with Ruby than mm-hmm. C- C-Sharp or other statically-type toolkits. Could be. I, I wanted to ask you guys, it sounds like Jesse in particular has some really specific ideas about what it means to be a public API. Like, what a public API should be, what deserves to be in there, and what doesn't. And I'd like to hear more about that and see if that doesn't explain more.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess, for me, the public API is what you expect, you know, if I make a class, what do I expect someone to call from this class? Like, if I make a unit that you know, parses a file and returns back an output, then really the only thing I really want the external, you know, I want them to call it a certain way, right? The unit test also usually serves as documentation on how to use that class. And so when you've made private members that are used in the main process of parsing that file public just for testability, it sort of implies because of the tooling as well as just the fact that it's public that I can also call this to do something. But it may Mm -hmm. not... Be of any use, and so now you're sort of maintaining the public API. These private functions are now publicly accessible, and so like it, it it means that if you need to refactor something, that private method is no longer just refactored in that one file. Like you now, your tests are, yeah now you have to touch all the tests that test it, mm-hmm. and unknown to you, you might have new consumers that are using this private method that you never expected to be public.
0: Right. That's the thing I was
1: bringing up before, though.
3: Yes. Yeah. So you
1: need like an unstable API? I know I've seen maybe in some Python projects where there'll be public methods that have leading underscores and the implication (laughs) there is you can build this if you want to, but it's not my problem if I break it later.
3: Yeah, and that's usually in languages where they don't have the concept of public private access modifiers, right? Like I don't maybe that's not true fully. Like I I mean I'm sure there's some language out there where that's not the case, but generally speaking, underscores and things like that are indicate that this this is private. Mm -hmm. Not that I made it public, but I don't want you to use it. It's usually yeah. because there is no way to make it private.
2: Yeah, I, I guess where I sort of come from that a little bit, and again, more of a .NET background. But you know, when today when we talk about APIs, we're usually thinking about like a full web call or something like that. You know, maybe, wh- whether it's REST or some other uh, means. But early in my career, we were doing client server work, mm-hmm. and it was using technology called .NET remoting. And there was a client server, but the boundary, you referenced a DLL. Okay. And so whatever you made public could be called by the client. And so it was That's also the, the concern situation. Comes yeah, from. it's sort of one of those things where it's like, that makes oh, sense. you weren't supposed to call that. It wasn't documented. Yeah, but IntelliSense just shows that it's right there. Yeah. So even the tooling is sort of saying like, Here's a method. Okay. So yeah. I I think that's sort of where it comes from. Because, I mean, if it was in a, you know, a, a, a Ruby app or something, I might be more inclined to just make it public. Yeah. I, I would probably ask the question, should this be pulled out into its own code, this so, own class?
0: Which is a good question. Yeah. I, I grant that's absolutely a great way to think about it. I, I think the in the specific example we were talking through, we ended up pulling it out into its own class and it took us, you know, X amount of time. I don't remember longer than we both expected.
3: Yep. (laughs) Uh, And so
0: I think I wonder if there is a sense in which there's a rule of three here where, uh, like if I'm going to pull out one method that I could just make internal to test around, Hmm. is there a rule of three where it needs to be, maybe it's not three specifically, but more than that, like, this, this one class is going to do that one piece of f- functionality, the filtering of the things, right? Yeah. Which maybe is super composable. I wonder if it's hyper composable. Um, and it would just be easier to write the test around it. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's a trade-off there, right? Yep. And the amount of yeah. time it takes me to rewrite it and inject sure, everything sure. and right. create and, all these objects. Yeah,
3: and if you're in like a, a a language like Ruby, a lot of times like this wouldn't have taken nearly as long right. to change. You would have been able to leave it private, but then you would have been like, oh yeah, I need to stub out this SFTP downloader, mm-hmm. and you would mm-hmm. have stubbed out that one class because of the dynamic nature of Ruby, and you right. would have moved on, moved along your merry way. And .NET, mm-hmm. the cost of doing that is a lot different. Now you're like, okay, I need to like pull this you know, this dependency up so that I can pass it in during, you know, unit test time, yep. pass some sort of substitute in. Yeah. Um, yep. So it is a lot different. I think it, you know, it depends on the language that you're in. Like your you, that sort of algorithm of do I need to make this its own class mm-hmm. probably greatly depends on the language right. you're in and how much effort it is to uh, to make that testable. Yeah,
0: there were other factors too in our case where we were using, like the SFTP thing was a mm-hmm. third party that we had to write interfaces for, which also took time Yeah, exactly. in order to
1: mock those in the tests. Yeah, So hey. We're maybe talking about some cultural differences, too. Like, say, what sort of timeline are you thinking on? Are you imagining this code being in use in one year or ten years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it going to be maintained by you or a stranger? Like, if you're building a .NET app on a six-dev team to hand off to a big client, then, I don't know, on the one hand, you'll probably be gone by the time they shoot themselves in the foot by using (laughs) your uh, improperly public methods. But on the other hand, they're not going to have much hope of sorting it out, so maybe you feel a bit more obligation to do it right for your hypothetical future consumers
0: to me it feels like there's two things going on in what you just said one assume the worst always which we do as programmers and sometimes i think to a fault at least myself uh but you know in general like there's this sort of if it could be null it'll be null kind of assumption things like that but then also it's like i don't want to write code that even if it's not me in the future is going to be hard to maintain for anybody yeah. Especially if we're giving it to a client that's not us because they won't have necessarily do- the domain knowledge that, that we have in building it, at least on day one.
1: Yeah. So I'm a really big fan of the you-aren't-going-to-need-it principle. So, Me yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about not over-engineering things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. building features that will never happen or spending too much time prematurely optimizing. So somewhere in this discussion, you could cross over, from, cross over that line, right? Like you're writing something that you really think no one's ever going to use, but it's technically public. So yeah. how many man-hours... Is it worth to do it the right way versus just to get it done and move on?
3: Yeah, but I'd argue the other way of like the, the you aren't going to need it. Like by making it public, I find that it makes your test a lot more brittle. Yeah. Like every time you refactor something in that class, you end up changing a lot of tests. And every time, and if you have like volatile, like the, if your tests are changing constantly, then your tests are almost worthless. Right. Because the whole point of a test so is to 10. test like the API. Like if I call this method, I get this result back because that's how it's used in production yeah. or whatever, right? And if you're constantly making changes to the internals, which are changing those tests, then your assumptions are always being like challenged, but not by the test; it's right. just by the like refactoring. And yeah. like so, your tests become more brittle. Someone's m- more likely to just comment out the test or skip the test, or or they're going to change the test because they're refactoring so much. They mm-hmm. think they've changed the the rules behind like why the test was written in the first place but maybe right. but maybe they didn't you know like maybe they shouldn't have and so i i test are usually like a documentation of like what what's supposed to happen mm-hmm. and so if you're constantly changing that and the business rules haven't changed then i think you've you've tested too much
1: yeah that makes sense so if you're testing exactly what's done and how it's done then it has to be rewritten every time you change your class but if you're testing more of the why then hopefully some of that will persist yeah. between evolutions Something
2: exactly. you said, Daniel, does did resonate with me, though, in terms of, you know, who your audience is. Um, I'm thinking of a time whenever I was working on a project. Everyone on the team had been there for, you know, years or more. And it's one of those cases where it's like, if this was a bit of code that we could look at the history and knew this thing hardly ever changed, but mm-hmm. it was important for us to test, we already knew how difficult it might have been for us to actually test this and break it out right. like yeah wow, we don't have any sort of you know for dot net dependency injection or any of those things around this yeah let's just make it public so it, there i mean we get back to the it depends but yeah. you know when we're trying to build something where it's you know hey we want to make this as quality as possible then go ahead there you go <laughs> you know so yeah I, I, there is still that level of it and i think we would yeah. all Ultimately, I'll I'll bet we could all come up with edge cases Mm -hmm. where we would go the other way. Right, but my
1: standard practice is definitely not to. Which way we lean, perhaps. You You mentioned decentralized client-server, and that was really interesting to me because it's probably harder to audit uses of your methods. Oh, no question. If you're publishing a library on GitHub, then an infinite number of people could be using all your private methods and you Mm -hmm. won't know until they complain when you break them. But even inside a single corporate network, you could have a server and a client in separate repos, and maybe maybe I'm searching my code base for this method, and it shows zero uses, but there's a sister repo that's just right up the street on your hard drive that's using all of your methods that you want to change, and Mm -hmm. that does seem a little harder to track. So mono repos. (laughs) that's not yeah i have seen
2: that work for smaller teams it wouldn't have worked in this situation but um you know there's one thing when i was first introduced to just the idea of testing and writing testable code i remember i had a lot of heartburn around the idea of things like dependency injection Mm -hmm. because of all of the things that up to that point i thought i knew about object-oriented programming like encapsulation Right. Like, you don't need to be sh- revealing all of the secrets of your implementation. Right, and you're
3: revealing oh, them in a constructor. Yeah, yeah, there, it's right? like, yeah. oh,
2: well, now someone can totally change how my class works because I had a very much a pyramid view mm-hmm. of how object-oriented systems should look where you have one object at the top and it orchestrates everything underneath it, but the user of it, you just have to new this one guy up. Right. And now... Mm-hmm. We have inverted that entire tree to say everything that I use at least again in .dot NET, but it's it's going to happen in other languages too, where I take in some interface of something mm-hmm. and it's allows for a more pluggable system. But I, I just remember the heartburn I had because I didn't want to have to change my code; it just felt wrong.
3: Yeah, right? and and I would argue it still feels. I mean, there's a lot of ceremony in .dot yeah. NET of <laughs> yes. making something unit testable and. And having, you know, inversion of control is just one of those things that are, you know, it's a lot of boilerplate. And, and it doesn't feel great. It's hard to great. explain. Yeah. I mean,
2: outside of it, you know.
3: Yeah, because like you said, I mean, every, yeah, it's <laughs> it's not fun in .NET, really. Like, to if you've got a class that has more than, like, two dependencies right. of something else, then suddenly it feels ridiculous. And uh, yeah. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. That's just sort of the, you know, the way the way that uh, static language has yeah. to has to... Have pluggable components like you know it's not like Ruby where you can just be like yeah you know this symbol like I'm just going to give you a fake one right here and like I want you to do this when this happens. Um,
1: mm-hmm. I will say that even in Ruby you have all the same dependencies. You're just not forced to be right. as explicit about them. Like you could have yes, a private true. method or just a public method halfway down the file mm-hmm. that calls out to this external service. And when it comes time to test, you're going to want to step out that service. Right, right. But in .NET, it would be called out as an interface in your constructor, whereas in Ruby, you could just say, the next time somebody in the next five lines calls this service, be sure and send them a fake object instead. So right, yeah. Maybe, I mean, that's another case. It feels like you're just sweeping your problems under the rug. Like, I like in, Go, in writing Go code, you have to declare your errors as a return type. You're going to know this could throw an exception that needs to be handled up front. Whereas mm-hmm. in Ruby... You could have a million different exceptions hidden in this one file, and you won't know until someone (laughs) thinks it through or finds Mm -hmm, them in production. mm -hmm.
2: Right. Yeah, I still do remember the first time I wrote a test around something. I was using, I can't even remember the Ruby gem, but you basically said for any net HTTP calls, Mm -hmm. when I get asked for this URL, send back this string of content instead. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I didn't have to inject anything. I didn't have to do. I just <laughs> configured it beforehand. Uh, I mean, another example of that is like the Stripe mock library. Mm-hmm. You can do the same sort of idea. Yeah, you don't have to do from the code that's actually using Stripe. You're set. You just yeah. Yeah. register what you're going to do ahead of time, and it knows.
3: So yeah. it's really easy to like accidentally call the real service. That's true. Well, you're that's like, oh, true. I'm suddenly calling Stripe yeah. for real. Like, oh, I forgot to turn on Stripe mocks. Like, right. I forgot to include right. Stripe mocks. You're like, oh, yeah. Whoops! Hope no one's you know yeah, looking at that too that's close. That's true.
1: So to me, that gets to a, a sort of a core uh, tension between programmers being, say conservative or, I don't want to say liberal, but more optimistic on what you choose to do. Like with Ruby, it's optimized for programmer happiness. Like, yes, you've got a million exceptions waiting around every corner. Yes, (laughs) you you technically have all these dependencies that you haven't called out, but you're having too much fun getting your code working and getting it to market quickly, so there's Ruby for you. Whereas on the flip Mm -hmm. side, with something like C Sharp, you're like, oh, somebody might need this 10 years from now. I better make sure it does what it says. (laughs) And this has these dependencies, so I have to put them there. Mm -hmm. And they're both valid. It just really sure, depends on... Yeah. Uh, budgets and timelines and client needs and whatnot.
3: Yeah, so did we answer our questions, Ben? Are,
0: um. You
3: know,
1: <laughs> I
0: think kind of. Honestly, the best answer is it depends. We're going to have a request to get rid of the bell. I feel when this like over.
1: they've changed their mind. <laughs> have come to a, a greater understanding, maybe bonded a bit? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: oh. I think maybe... Some assumptions are being made on on all our parts mm-hmm. uh, i remember I remember hearing Jesse earlier in the episode say something about my default is private stays private like no exceptions is kind right. of the default, but there are reasons you would break that rule,
3: yeah, yeah, when it becomes public,
0: and I wonder if you 're hearing us say our default is everything is public so that we can write tests around it because mm-hmm. we 're not saying that <laughs> I think we just have a lower threshold for when to break that rule yeah yeah, so. I think
3: that's a that's a fair assumption. And .NET, I think, internal is the answer to that. Yeah. As janky as that is. I know Mo's done a lot of that as well. Like, the whole internal's visible, too.
2: Mm-hmm. It used to be even harder because you had I to put the I think it's now impossible in, in,
3: like, the new, uh, like... What? I think in, like, the new project types. Like, <gasps> n- not the new libraries, but I think, like, the new websites. Like, you can't make the new, like, ASP.NET Core, MVC. Like, there is no... Oh, man. There's no, like, assembly info file, so I don't think you can make, like, internals. Interestingly,
0: in the blog post that generated all of this uh, hubbub, he says that (laughs) internal is just a way of doing the exact same thing but making yourself feel better about it. Exactly. (laughs) I feel much better when I do it. You know, from
2: from a practical perspective, yes. I mean, like like I said, uh, .NET specifically, it's not
3: because... It doesn't make it fully public. Yeah, you, you can't... But even
2: in the same way that you can get around, even with .NET, you can use reflection to get to private. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. are ways to get around any of these things, but when you are talking about internal, mm-hmm. like just case in point, uh, IntelliSense. Yeah, I, if you're a library .NET vendor. programmers tend to code by IntelliSense mm-hmm. more than by even sometimes documentation, where it's just like, yep. I'm looking for Something that does this. I type it. Oh, cool. I've got one. Dot. And that has now become your API. Mm -hmm. And if it's internal and it's in another assembly, you can't call it without going to something like reflection or an internals visible sort of thing. So I think that's That's a good point. Probably where some of that comes from. Whereas like, you know, in another in Ruby, if it's public, many developers aren't working with tools that give you all of the public methods off of it. Right. You know, so it's like, maybe it's not as big of a deal. So, you're optimizing, you just document it. And if someone calls it, well, you'll just, you know, hey, that wasn't a documented method. Right. So, I do think there's, you know, the different backgrounds that we come from or whatever that's just inform our preferences our defaults if you to use your word there
0: i agree i, I think daniel's answer your question have i changed my mind i'm not so sure but i do feel like i understand all of you a lot better so that was helpful all right if you would like to Hooray. contribute to the discussion uh, feel free to reach out to us on twitter we'd love to hear your thoughts or any questions you have regarding testing as we've closed our series now mm-hmm. again we're at at clear function and hashtag it depends Thanks for joining this week, guys. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to It Depends, a podcast by Clear Function. Clear Function is a group of happy engineers based in Memphis, Tennessee. We partner with visionaries to bring their ideas to life. For more information, check out our website at clearfunction.com.